Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on the 30th of July 2012. For newcomers, I suggest you make good use of CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com website. You'll find over a thousand audios for free download. And you'll find a bunch of other sites listed. They're all official sites that carry audios. If you're sticking on one, try the other. And uh, they all carry transcripts in English. I've got the talks too for print up. And if you go into Alan AlanWattSentinel.eu, you'll find transcripts in other languages as well. And what I do on this program is basically to give you the past and show you that big organizations a long time ago got together in fact, they created each specialist branch, which they call foundations, which work with think tanks on every aspect of society with the intention of bringing in a kind of scientific society, so scientifically run, that is, and an ordered society. Plus, they would take over, the boys at the top would take over all the resources of the world, and down the road, they'd eventually ration it to different uh, countries, which they'd merge into trading blocks. Over a 100 years ago, we're well on the way, and of course, the Royal Institute of International Affairs is at the head of all of this, and they have branches across every country in the world today. And remember, too, that you are the audience that bring me to you. You can help me keep going by buying the books and discs at CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com. And from the U.S. to Canada, remember, you can use a personal check or an international postal money order from the post office. You can send cash or you can use PayPal. And straight donations are really, really welcome. Across the world, Western Union, MoneyGram, and PayPal once again. But it's a hard thing for most folk to believe because you have a, a massive machinery of information set up in newscasting corporations, again, all members of the same organization, the CFR in the States, for instance. And um, you're kept in a fake reality. You're never given any real truth on anything, even when they tell you about scientific discoveries and what they're working at and one day they hope to do this. Whenever they come out with this stuff, it's been done at a, at a high level long ago. And it's the lower levels that are still doing this. They're out of the loop, of course, in the lower levels. So you're really in a managed society. They know exactly where they're taking the whole world. And uh, so many straight faces come on television and tell you, um, all the experts tell you how to behave through it, what to expect. That's also predictive programming because you're, you're programmed to expect the things which they tell you about. So it doesn't seem so bad when it actually happens. Uh, so... We live in a very planned society. Authors like Huxley, who attended lots of global meetings in his day, his brother was uh, Julian, wasn't the head of UNESCO, for United Nations. They talked about it too, and he said that the people would come to love their servitude. That's happening today, really, because they've got so much entertainment as they're brought down into austerity that it doesn't seem so bad at all. This is a unique thing to have all this entertainment when they're bringing you down. Otherwise, it'd be massive riots. 
Now they do expect massive riots, but not in same, on the same context with everyone rioting. It's always the ones at the bottom who riot first when uh, things get cut back for welfare and different things like that. Expenses, of course, go up all the time in all, in all classes, so they're the first ones to feel the pinch. And governments are being well organized to get ready to deal with it all. They're always ahead. They don't, nothing happens here by chance on a world scale or any big scale at all. It's always known long in advance because it's planned that way. Just like the amalgamation of countries, like the whole European Soviet Union that they've created there, and the same thing with the Pacific Rim region as well, and the North American uh, NAFTA integration plus the North American integration with all the Pacific Rim countries as well. It's all been done, folks. And they talked about this a hundred years ago, as they say in their books. Back with more after this. Hi folks, we're back, coming through the Matrix and predictive programming. Incredible science and technique, of course. And it's been used for an awful long time. It is a method of getting you used to an idea, which is often repulsive at first. But, but gradually, over time, by repetition, it becomes kind of fixed in your head. Well, it's a possibility. And, and you'll also watch programs on television that come out or mainstream telling you how good it's going to be and how you'll adapt to it. It won't be so bad after all. It's a very simple technique, just repetition, repetition. And when it eventually happens, you'll find that you're doing something like this article we're talking about, like eating crickets and bugs and things. Now, a few years ago, I mentioned the, the, the first article that came out by a couple of very little rich chil- children, from rich kids out in New York. That's what they were who were doing something with the United Nations, traveling the planet, having a great old time to themselves in some big grant, and uh, uh, coming out and talking about eating bugs. That was the first time we were heard about it. And I said to be a lot more down in the future as we get used to this. Do you understand, through the free trade organizations and all the treaties that have been signing, you, they're bringing down a lot of the, the, the food that they're growing is going to biofuel. And they knew this long before. They knew eventually they'd get us eating other things and putting this stuff to biofuel. And we're already here at this, because, see, the big farms, or the corporate farms, are ruling the world. Five corporate farms companies run the world's food supply today. And there's only a small amount of private farms left, and you're going out of business big time. That's the agenda, too. And so a lot of their crops want to go to biofuel, and, and they want to export, too. See, one time your country, under different rules that you had, you had to make sure that people at home ate enough. They had enough food at home. Not now with free trade, you see. You can be starving at home, and they'll dump it across the world where everything can get the best price for it. That's all part of free trade as well. So it says here in this BBC article, future foods, what we'll be, we'll be eating in 20 years' time. And it says volatile food prices and a growing population mean we have to rethink what we eat. Say future food or, or food futurologists, but futurologists for everything. So what we might be serving up in 20 years' time, it's not immediately obvious what links NASA, the price of meat and brass bands, but all three are playing a part in shaping what we will eat in the future and how we will eat it. So that was presented in an almost a comical way, sometimes a realistic way as well. And then they go through the usual nonsense here, like foods we used to eat, and they give you some of the delicacies the ancients ate, not ordinary people. So they give you 
examples of Greece, Rome, uh, and then in Tudor times, then Henry VIII's banquets. Well, people, the ordinary folk didn't eat like Henry VIII, obviously, so that's got nothing to do with it. This is uh, rising food prices, a growing population, environmental concerns, just a few issues of organizations, including the United Nations and the government, worrying about how we will feed ourselves in the future. Now, as I said, they've had world meetings about this for when they set up the League of Nations, in fact, at the end of World War One, they talked about setting up agribusinesses. Remember, all resources would be taken over by a few companies. And it's happened, you see. And now now it's a way to explain to the public why they want to change your your habits, your tastes, and everything else. Since in the UK, meat prices have anticipated uh, are anticipated to have a huge impact on our diet. Some in the food industry estimate they could double in the next five to seven years, making meat a luxury item. Well, be surprised though the best meat's already been exported out of your countries to China. For those who don't know, you see, that's all planned too. That's why the, the rubbish they leave at home is so overpriced and terrible. In the West, many of us have grown up with cheap, abundant meat, said food futurologist Morgan Gay. Rising prices mean we now start seeing the return of meat as a luxury, and that's exactly what they're doing. And they don't know this in the States yet, because they're still a lot cheaper there. They kept artificially low. But once they've finished their wars, they're going to bang the States like everybody else. That's the only purpose the U.S. has right now, is furnishing armies for the for, for people who don't even live in that country. Anyway, it says here, rising prices means we're now starting to see their turn of meat as a luxury. As a result, we're looking for ways to fill the meat gap. So what will fill such gaps in stomachs? Caterpillars, insects, they call it mini livestock, right? Isn't that wonderful, mini livestock? And it's a win-win situation because insects provide as much nutritional value as ordinary meats and are a great source of protein. According to researchers at Wageningen University in the Netherlands. Now, in the Netherlands, they always pick one country to be the, to be the main experimenter in a certain area. And Holland has gone into artificial meat and tank grown meat. Another into bugs. Says it also costs less to raise in cattle, consume less water, and do not have much of a carbon footprint. Oh, oh. There are estimated 1,400 species that are edible to man. So they want to change your whole diet. And this is only one of many articles you're going to get used to as they start speeding up this whole idea. You understand, you don't come to your own conclusions. You're guided to your conclusions by people like these. And many, many, many articles and also uh, little things on television too as they push this stuff to get you prepared for eating all of this kind of stuff. And they always hire a few celebrities too who will tell you they'll eat it. They've already got a few. And uh, they don't really, of course, but they'll tell you they do. And you'll all follow them like, like robots, you see. So it says, Sonic enhanced food. It's well documented how the appearance of food and its smell influence what you eat. But the effect sound has on taste is an expanding area of research in, in neuroscience now where they can make, uh, it can really screw up your brain. A recent study by Oxford scientists found that certain tones could make things taste sweeter or more bitter. There's no experience as a single sense experiences. Russell Jones from the Sonic branding company Condiment Junkie, who were, impo- who were involved in the study. So much attention is paid to what food looks like, what it smells like, but sound is just as important. So they'll screw with your brain until, oh, that sounds delicious. That, that sounds delicious. That's, what, that's what you'll see yourself, you see. And, uh, and you probably will. But they do go into some of the things and even why they have uh, some of the top brands of refrigerators. White seems clean. It's all psychology, you see. And you're, you're, that's how you're conned with everything. It's, it's psychology. 
and they do a lot of experiments on the general public without them knowing. And they also have those uh, special groups they bring in too uh, to see how their ideas take off. So get used to the idea because this is a plan, folks. It's only the rich down the road in all countries will get real food. Like the rich down the road uh, in the present time, the rich actually get organic everything. I mean, I mean the real stuff that's grown in islands in certain special places like that. The Queenie has her whole herd and cattle of cattle up in the highlands of Scotland and massive farming because they still have their tenant farmers, the nobility, you see. And they don't use any uh, pesticides at all. Just lots of peasants to pick off the bugs, which they then sell to you. So that's the world as we know it. Now, Colorado Shooter 2, this is from a Jewish paper, was a camp counselor for her Jewish big brothers and sisters. An, an undated handout uh, was, was, was shown in the press. It says, James Holmes, a Colorado graduate student who suspected of killing 12 moviegoers and wounding 58 others on Friday during his premiere of Dark Knight Rises, worked as a camp counselor in Los Angeles County in 2008 that was run by Jewish Big Brothers and Sisters, the group CEO told NBC4 News on Saturday. So he worked as a camp counselor. Uh, at Camp Max Strauss in the summer of 2008, according to Randy Schwab, the CEO of Jewish Big Brothers and Sisters. And, of course, they're all in shock and horror, etc., etc., all the people who knew him. And they don't say much about him, except he kept himself pretty well much to himself. Now, I mentioned last week how the government, and I gave the, the government site where they'd put out tenure for, um, for massive uh, orders of riot gear, this is on top of all the massive orders of ammunition for an internal war, uh, obviously, uh, that they ordered a month or so prior to that, or two months prior to that. So it says here in this article, it's not just Homeland Security, the U.S. Army's ordering riot gear too. And it says um, it's more than just stockpiling surveillance drones to spy on U- U.S. citizens. The U.S. Army is attempting to procure an arsenal of riot gear in case the military must go toe-to-toe with civilians on U.S. soil. A solicitation for weapons, with a link for it too from the government, posted on the official government website for federal business opportunities reveals the U.S. Army has been in the market for non-lethal equipment that it that it might very well be used in the United States. In a web posting made earlier this year, the Army asked for bids regarding its request for riot shields, face masks, polycarbonate batons, body armor. On July the 10th, they awarded the contract to A2Z Supply Corps of Stevensville, Montana, who pledged to fulfill the request at the tune of $6,589,000. I think it says here, okay, I should be smaller than that, it's only 6589 That's a small one of many orders that they put out. The latest inquiry from the U.S. Army was filed only a few weeks before another call for bids was published by the Department of Homeland Security. On July 26th, the DHS Office of Procurement Operations also wrote on, on FBGov that they were soliciting contractors to help equip them with riot helmets, tactical gloves, uh, shin guards, body armor, and other equipment comparable uh, that could be used in tandem with a complex riot control system. According to the 2001 executive order that established the DHF signed uh, by then-President George Bush, the agency will coordinate the executive branch's effort to detect, prepare for, prevent, protect against, respond to, and recover from terrorist attacks within the United States. With an agency assigned only domestic duties, asking for thousands of dollars worth of riot gear, 
and an army with more than one million soldiers seeking body, body armor, not assault rifles. Many are suggesting that the solicitation requests are readying the government for a blown, a full-blown uh, war with its own people on U.S. soil. Both requests were published within days of a recent Capitol Hill testimony delivered from Homeland Security Secretary Janet Napoleon, I always call her Napoleon, that included experts confirming that the federal government is considering deploying surveillance drones over California as a means of proactively patrolling American cities under the guise of public safety. So we'll, we'll see more and more of this. Most people won't care. They live in a dreamland anyway because there's, there's so much fun, fun, fun on television for them if they're very immature. And the, the, and lots of entertainment, cheap entertainment for them. The Huffington Post urges America to pay a carbon tax to fight climate change. Of course, they're the, as far left as you can get it. They're all old Trotskyites. And it's nothing to do with carbon tax. They've already admitted it's to save the poor across the world with all that cash. Back with more after this. Hi folks, we're back cutting through the matrix. Now, everyone knew this years ago that eventually the internet would be totally regulated because the big boys like Brzezinski that talked about this back in the 70s would be given a system of communication unlike any seen before and the public would think it was all for their fun and, and for their use but eventually it would, it would all be taken over by the authorities themselves and used on the people like, like a tool or a weapon. It already has been. But the NSA boss, the boss of this NSA wants more control over the net, it says. And the internet should be adapted to allow for oversight by the National Security Agency, the boss says. U.S. internet infrastructure needs to be redesigned to allow NSA to know instantly when overseas hackers might be attacking public or private infrastructures and computer networks, agency leader uh, General Keith Alexander said today. Alexander spoke at the annual DEF CON a computer hacking conference in Las Vegas. It was a symbolic appearance that he said was motivated by a need to interest the hacker community and helping to make the internet more secure. Does this make sense to you? Alexander, who's also commander of the US Cyber Command, described the internet as a, at a great risk from exploitation, disruption and, and, uh, uh, destruction, he says. In recent years, many Internet users have become familiar with the idea that websites can be knocked offline by denial-of-service attacks, such as those employed on, by online activist groups such as Anonymous. My concern is that it's going to flow into destructive attacks that could have consequences for a critical national infrastructure and the Internet itself, said Alexander. Now, so far as that we know, the main uh, cyber attacks that have been done were done by the U.S. and Britain against Iran. <laughs> Anyway, it says, the decentralized nature of the Internet and the fact that the global network is built from a thicket of independent public and private networks is limiting efforts to protect against such attacks, it says, because it doesn't allow the NSA or law enforcement to easily track Internet activity, really, with all the laws have passed. We don't sit around our country and look in. We have no idea if Wall Street is about to be attacked, said Alexander. It's mainly when Wall Street's going to attack all of us. The NSA is already running a trial with 17 U.S. defense companies intended to demonstrate technology that could be deployed to change that. Under the defense industrial base cyber plot, Lockheed Martin, who else? Lockheed Martin. Lockheed Martin's one of the biggest in industrial complexes for military. They even run British, the British weapon systems for, for missiles and everything. Privatizing war, you see. 
Another company set up the computer security systems to automatically alert the agency when the alarm is tripped. They automatically pass a summary of what was detected and the IP address associated with the event to the NSA over the Internet. All you need to pass is the fact of a signature and an IP address in real time, and we can take it from there, said Alexander. He suggested that the NSA should be given wider checkpoint role across the Internet to protect core infrastructure and all vital systems connected to it, drawing an analogy with an automatic road toll system. Now, you really think they don't have all that already? You know, the NSA is like a black op because we don't, they don't tell us what they're up to. You understand? They don't tell us what they're up to. So it says what we need for cybersecurity is something analogous to that. Think of us as the easy pass on the highway. He dismissed possible concerns about giving the NSA too much oversight into how the Internet's been used. When you go down the highway and you go down the easy pass lane, well, what you're doing is sending that code. That system is not looking in your car, reading the email, or intercepting anything. It's just getting that code. Well, they've already admitted they're already reading their emails, and etc., etc. He suggested rolling back the decentralization of computer networks by saying that thin client computing should be considered by large organizations. Long out of fashion, the thin client approach gives individual users relatively simple computers that access computing resources that are controlled centrally. That could help large organizations such as the U.S. Department of Defense, which currently has some 15,000 separately configured and operated sections of its network, said Alexander, offering uh, too many potential areas of attack. So they want to centralize everything. They've been doing it for years, mind you. You always can tell when they're, when they're putting more and more of the stuff through central routers, more IP servers and all the rest of it, because you have slowdowns and even your telephone goes weird for, for about a week or two, and then it goes back up to normal when, they, when they're routing it through central uh, NSA routers. So this is standard hoopla that he's going through. It's just an idea to get you used to the fact that you have less rights and less rights and more intrusion. That's all it is. And we always talk, too, about, I mean, we should get brought up in school to, to look at the guys with the suits and ties and the very expensive ones, you know, they'd bring in once in a while, like politicians. And you were trained to believe that, that there was an honest businessman out there, an honest politician. At least you were in Britain. That's how you were indoctrinated with nonsense. And uh, most, for most folk, it stays for life. That's why they always have a guy with a suit on and tie telling you the news. And you'd get raised with some of these guys that would stay on for years until they were falling off the chairs because that was the high idea, be a father figure. And it looked you right in the eye on television every night at 6 p.m. And, and he, he couldn't lie to you. That's why they paid them so much money to stay. But of course, there's more crooks amongst bankers than anywhere else in the world because no one really looks at what they're up to. And the whole idea is to maximize the profit on everything. He's a, he's a guy in Britain who is a 500 pounds a day banker, admits benefit fraud. He was also scamming the public for unemployment money. Uh, it says a banking troubleshooter has been prosecuted for fraudulently receiving benefits while being paid 500 pounds a day in the city, as the city of London. This is Adam Lancelot, 35, obviously adopted that name or his family did. Spent his earnings on a Mercedes convertible, a kitchen refurbishment, foreign holidays and restaurant meals. But between spells working for major financial institutions such as Barclays uh, Wealth, he, he was also claiming council tax benefit. But also he, he fraudulently received hundreds of pounds for a period when he failed to tell the council that he was in employment. Back with more after this. This guy's going to go far. 
are listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. Hi, folks. Talking about one particular banker, one of many, of course, because it's the nature of it in banking. It's, you've got to be a winner, a winner, a winner. It doesn't matter how you win, just win. But Tom Adam Lancelot, who literally was earning £500 a day uh, working for banks, all contract works, of course, and at the same time, a big banks like Barclays, and he was claiming unemployment money from the, the, the state, and he was also claiming council tax benefits as for being unemployed. This is, however, he frontly received hundreds of pounds over a period when he failed to tell the council that he was in employment. So Lancelot of El- Edenbridge, Kent, made four charges in relation to benefit fraud at Seven Oaks Magistrates Court earlier this week. The court heard that he was a troubleshooter for banks, but that he'd been unable to find work since August last year. And like that's like continuous work. And his solicitor, which is his lawyer, said he'd be put his head in the sand about the benefits he was receiving and that although he earned a lot of money while working, he'd endured long periods of unemployment due to the financial crisis. So that's the, the sob piece for the put in for the, the guys with cash. He says he stuck his head in the sand and thought he could sort it out later, but it caught up with them. The banking industry is taking a huge knock and job losses have been in the tens of thousands while he was working. Uh, he told the benefit team at Seven Oaks District Council that he was in work at relevant times, but the council said it had no record of it, wasn't declaring it. So and that's what happens. He'll go far, though. A guy like that will go far. Now, austerity at the Olympics, because at one time I think he had real gold medals, and they used to tell you how much gold was in each medal. But uh, it's a private corporation, remember, and again, they're cost-cutting, too, from bigger profits for themselves at the top. But says austerity at the Olympics, each gold medal contains 1.34% gold. I guess it's plated, maybe. As every Olympic athlete knows, size matters. The London 2012 medals are the largest ever in terms of both weight and diameter. Almost double the medals from Beijing have are just as equally well known as that quality beats quantity and that is where the current global austerity coin clipping devaluation fest begins. So the 2012 gold is 92.5% silver, 6.16 copper, and 1.34% gold. With, so, so it's a very banking thing, isn't it? Then you get twice the size, and it only put that little bit of gold in it, too. And most of it will be copper. So the IOC rules are specifying that it must contain 550 grams of high-quality silver and a whopping 6 grams of gold. The resulting medallion is worth about £500, for the silver medal, the gold is replaced with more copper for, and for a 260 bill of materials. The bronze medal is 97% copper, 2.5% zinc and 0.5% tin. Valued about $3, you might be able to trade one for a bag of chips in Olympic parks if you skip the fish. So everything, everybody's maximizing the profit in this rush for greed. You understand this is a, this is a time where everyone's rushing towards get as much money as they can get before the collapse thinking if you just get enough over a certain limit, you're in amongst the winners as everybody else loses. And that's across the board everywhere. That's what they're doing. And everyone's talked about fluoride for an awful long time, and, and the governments are quite happy to keep dumping it in your water supply. And it does have many different side effects, including brittle bones and teeth, and it also brings down your IQ, which they've known for about 100 years. 
countries like Sweden don't use, even though they're the most socialist countries, they don't use fluoride at all. I don't think they ever did. And they've got better teeth and better bones structure than people in the West. But anyway, it says, Major Harvard study published in Federal Government Journal confirms fluoride lowers your IQ. So it's a Harvard study. Maybe we'll start listening to it now. And I'll put this up tonight. But it says, um, Harvard study published in Federal Government Journal uh, confirms fluoride lowers IQ. If the scientific link between fluoride exposure and a noted decrease in IQ is a conspiracy theory, then perhaps the Harvard researchers who have just confirmed such a link should be tarred and feathered by the evidence-based medical media. In a telling review of a variety of studies that have demonstrated just how significantly fluoride can damage the brain and subsequently your IQ, Harvard University scientists stated our results support the possibility of adverse effects of fluoride exposure on children's neurodevelopment. See, they want to dumb you down early. The most outstanding component to the study is where it was published. The authors published their conclusion online in the July 20th edition of the prominent journal Environmental Health Perspectives, a federal government and medical journal stemming from the United States National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences. The very same government has continually asserted that water fluoridation is both perfectly safe and effective at aiding the health of citizens who consume it on a daily basis. In the past, the U.S. government has actually been forced to call for lower fluoridation levels as previous research had also drawn a link between fluoride exposure and a host of neurotoxic effects. In the latest research by Harvard, it's made even more explicitly clear just how toxic fluoride can be to the body. In a written statement, researchers state that children in high fluoride areas had significantly, significantly lower IQ than those who lived in low fluoride areas. Well... They won't stop, though, you know, because they, they want a passive population. Governments have always wanted a passive, dumbed-down population. That reads your histories. So it lowers your IQ, and it sparks tumor growth. It should become as no surprise to those who have followed fluoride research over the past several years. As far back as 1977, for instance, epidemiological studies performed by the head of the cytochemistry section at the National Cancer Institute, Dr. Dean Burke, revealed that fluoride exposure led to increased tumor growth, and even at levels as low as one parts per million, the standard in United States drinking water. Beyond revealed, revealing an, an accelerated tumor growth rate of 25% in his research, fluoride was found to produce melanotic tumors, transform normal cells into cancer cells, and increases the carcinogenesis of other chemicals. In 1977, Dr. Burke estimated the fluoridation has actually caused about 10,000 deaths, according to his research. It will come as no surprise then that even the EPA, an agency charged with protecting the people, has classed fluoride as a substance with substantial evidence of developmental neurotoxicity. Perhaps the EPA is also run by blubbering conspiracy theorists. And another entry by study authors explained how fluoride actually attacks the brain in unborn children, and essentially launches a direct assault on their neurological development. Fluoride readily crosses the placenta. Fluoride exposes the developing brain, which is much more susceptible to injury caused by toxicants than is the mature brain, and may possibly lead to damage of a permanent nature. But the U.S. government answered the study. As mentioned, many studies have exposed the same correlation of IQ-crushing fluoride intake, Paul Connett, PhD, and director of the Fluoride Action Network, was one of the many activists to speak out regarding the last study to highlight the association. So, 
There's been 23 former studies, uh, that's major ones, on the matter. And Connert uh, felt that this 24 study was by far the strongest. And what was done, unfortunately, it was brushed under the rug by mainstream health organizations who continue to assert that fluoride is perfectly safe. Some even recommend supplementing with fluoride pills. Well, you understand that the FDA is a con system. It's not there to protect you at all, never was. Uh, it was guys like Bernays who set up these specialist institutions to make the public think that, oh, if they're specialist institutions, uh, then it must be for our health and better for us. It was the contrary. It was, remember, that Bernays worked for big international corporations, big pharma, etc. And the idea was that it hired two or three uh, top characters, at least have their names uh, on their, their door and their office, although they never had to turn up at them. Just having the names on was enough. And people thought, my God, these are really government-run institutions that are awfully, awfully good. It never occurred to them that uh, it was just all they do was sell their poisons. Fluoride, remember, is really one of the stuff that, that scraped off the inside of the big towers that they burn off heavy metals with, especially aluminum. They scrape it off. One time they had to pay to get it dumped because it's so toxic, and somebody came up with a bright idea of putting it in your toothpaste and making you buy it. That's what they generally do. These are the kind of people and, and psychopaths that run the world, you understand. And they're out there. There's lots of them. And they recognize each other and they form clubs. Now this article here is, uh, says with friends like these, Facebook has 59 million users and 2 million new ones each week join. But you won't catch Tom Hodginson volunteering his personal information, not now that he knows the politics of the people behind the social networking site. This is a following correlation was printed in the Guardian's Connection and Clarifications column Wednesday, January 16, 2008. The U.S. intelligence community's enthusiasm for high-tech innovation after 9-11 and the creation of NQTEL's Venture Capital Fund in 1999 were anachronistically linked to the article below. Since 9-11 happened in 2001, it could not have led to the setting up of an IFQTEL in two years earlier. The Independent Guide to Facebook, it says, I despise Facebook. This enormously successful American business describes itself as a social utility that connects you with the people around you. But hang on, why on God's earth would I need a computer to connect with the people around me? Why should my relationships be mediated through the imagination of a bunch of super geeks in California? What was wrong with the public? And does Facebook really connect people? Doesn't it rather disconnect us, since instead of doing something enjoyable, such as talking and eating and dancing and drinking with my friends, I'm merely sending them little ungrammatical notes and amusing photos in cyberspace while chained to my desk. A friend of mine recently told me he spent a Saturday night at home alone on Facebook, drinking at his desk. What a gloomy image. Far from connecting us, Facebook actually isolates us at our workstations. Facebook appeals to a kind of vanity and self-importance in us too. If I put up a flattering picture of myself with a list of my favorite things, I can construct an artificial representation of who I am in order to get sex or approval. I like Facebook, said another friend. He says, I got a shag. A shag is a term they use in Britain for something often usually said in Hollywood movies in, in America. It also encourages a disturbing competitiveness around friendship. It seems that with friends today, quality counts for nothing and quantity is king. The more friends you have, the better you are. You're popular in a sense, much loved in American high schools. Witness the cover lines on Dennis Publishing's new Facebook magazine, How to Double Your Friends List. 
It seems that I'm very much alone in my hostility. At the time of writing, Facebook claims 59 million active users, including 7 million in the UK, Facebook's third biggest customer after the US and Canada. That's 59 million suckers, all of whom have volunteered their ID card information and consumer preferences to an American business they know nothing about. Right now, 2 million new people join each week. Their present rate of growth, Facebook will have more than 200 million active users by this time next year. And I predict that if anything, its rate of growth will accelerate over the coming months. As its spokesman Chris Hughes says, it's embedded itself to an extent where it's hard to get rid of. Off the above would have been enough to make me reject Facebook forever, but there are more reasons to hate it. Many more. This is Facebook is a well-funded project, and the people behind the funding, a group of Silicon Valley venture capitalists, have a clearly thought-out ideology that they're hoping to spread around the world. Facebook is one manifestation of this ideology. Like PayPal before it, it's a social experiment, an expression of a particular kind of neoconservative libertarianism. On Facebook, you can get be free to be who you want to be, as long as you don't mind being bombarded by, with adverts from the, the, the people's biggest brands. As with PayPal, national boundaries are a thing of the past. Although the project was initially conceived by media cover star Mark Zuckerberg, I don't think it was actually. The real feel uh, face behind Facebook is the 40-year-old Silicon Valley venture capitalist and futures philosopher uh, Peter Thiel. There are only three board members on Facebook, and there are Thiel, Zuckerberg, and a third investor called Jim Breyer from a venture capital firm called Axel Partners. It says Thiel invested $500,000 in Facebook when Harvard student Zuckerberg, Chris Hughes, and Dustin Moscovich went to meet him in San Francisco in June 2004. Soon after they had launched the site, Thiel now reportedly owns 7% of Facebook, which at Facebook's current valuation is $15 billion, which would be worth more than $1 billion. There is much debate on who exactly were the original co-founders of Facebook, but whoever they were, Zuckerberg is the only one left on board, although Hughes and Moscovich still work for the company. But it goes into all the other scams that they do and the incredible money that they're raking in. But of course, too, they're also working with the NSA, and they also give all your data out to many government-funded grants through universities, uh, to universities, and they use all your data to find out why you like these kind of people, what do you have in common, and it's all to do with control purposes down the road. So it's all to do with neuroscience, again, behaviorism. Behaviorists are really involved in these kind of things. That's what it's for. But definitely, government wants to know all about you. Because in a totalitarian regime, you see, they have to have all information about you, because you must be predictable. And you understand? You've got to be very predictable in a totalitarian system. Another technique they're using now, everything's now is neuroscience and psychology. Uh, this is quite something. Good drivers should be rewarded. Wouldn't it be great if you were rewarded for being a good driver? This is for the simpletons out there. There's lots of them, mind you. And it says, well, um, now you could be. You could be rewarded for being a good driver. And how does it work? It's called telematics. I'll put two articles up tonight on this also known as black box or smart box insurance. By having a clever telematics box installed in your car, your insurance can see that you're a safe driver and could offer you cheap premiums. It says it could, doesn't say it will. See all this terminology they use. How, uh, you'll need to start by taking out a telematics car insurance policy. Use our simple online forms to find the cheapest car insurance quotes. Look for insurance who offer telematics policies and results. Choose a, a telematics policy and you're on your way. It's a black box, for goodness sakes. 
is taking all your data of your driving habits every single day, where you're going, how long it took you to get there, how many times you braked and everything else. But I'll also, I guarantee you, I'll guarantee this company will also be linked with, with satellite computer systems for the government as well. Guarantee you. See, you always pay for your chains. And you've got lots of kinds of chains. Lots of them. This little joke here is quite good. Green Mayor, this is a Green Mayor in England, is forced to pay £70 for taxi after his electric car runs out of power. The country of Britain, first Green Mayor was forced to pay £70 for a taxi when his brand new council leased electric car ran out of power during an engagement. The eco-friendly Renault Fluence ZE is leased to Brighton and Hove City Council but left Mayor Bill Randall stranded after a visit to Chilchester, Sussex. This meant the mayor had to spend £70, don't worry, it's taxpayers' money, on a taxi to get him to another engagement on time. The car will not be on general sale until autumn of this year, but one was lent by Renault to the council on a temporary basis to advertise themselves, you see. It says, despite the embarrassing mishap, the council have said there's no decision on whether the car will be kept past its initial six-month loan. Well, you've got to have uh, recharging stations all over the place. After his appointment in May, Kuhn Randall says, it's great news not just for the environment but for the taxpayer too, as the electric car won't cost them a penny. What a joke. What a joke. Who thinks financing it all? I think it sends a good message and I'm sure Renault only did it because we are a green council. Green council. Really. The council is covering running costs for electric replacement during the loan period and is considering buying its own electric car. When it goes flat, that's you stuck. That's it. Big towing fees, all that kind of stuff. What a joke. And how do you make electricity? Isn't that polluting too? Back with more after this. Hi folks, we're back. And there's a caller, Jeremiah, from Philadelphia. Are you there, Jerry? Hi, Alan. Yes. How are you? Um, yeah, the one thing I personally I want to touch on is, you know, you've been such an influence on me, and so is another man by such a similar name, uh, Alan Watts. You're, two, you're probably the two most influential people to me in my uh, journey for truth here, so I think it's very interesting. Maybe at another time you could touch on uh, if you ever heard of him. Yeah. Um, the second thing is uh, you, know, you mentioned the NSA and uh, – you know, if you type in Illuminati backwards, it's, uh, it brings you right to NSA's website. But really, that's like a whole other uh, various red heron that we see out here that yeah. traps you in that box. Um, you know, the whole search for this Illuminati, obviously. But we know what some of the truths are with it. I mean, I guess it's not so obvious, but with the Illuminati, uh, you know, it's one of those things where you say, you know, it's really catchy, uh, you mm-hmm. know, it gets everyone, you know, going, but it's not really... Um, you know, there's, there's no there's no material facts to it at all. Um, so another thing I, I really want to touch on was something called a dualistic paradigm. You talk so much about um, the different elements of like uh, how how things can be taken two different ways. Like the truth, it, it's so razor thin, and everything's so razor thin. And then on the other side, you know, it's falsehood. But that's how they get you uh, trapped into so many uh, boxes in your attempt to what we would call wake up. But yeah. uh, along the way, it's just like uh, one trap door after the other. And, 
you know, I, I just feel like ultimate, it's ultimate truth everything to raise a sin because along the way, even your friends and your family, everyone's going to be trying to trap you in this box. Um, yeah, yeah, it's, all, it's also a product. If you go into Plato, Plato talked about that in the Republic and how they would bring a new society and because uh, really he, they all came to the conclusion in, in, their, in that particular book that uh, mankind can only do what he can get away with and most folk will get away with whatever they can. And therefore, the elite themselves, should, who are, were even craftier, should rule the world using a kind of moral relativity, which is taught now in schools, that nothing is really right, nothing is really wrong. And depending on how you word things, most folk will always jump at whatever you give to them without realizing uh, there's a whole bunch of negativities already uh, created within that, the question itself. So, so you're quite right. So it's a legalism form of you giving your rights up thinking you're going to get more and and, uh, in fact all things are written that way you're going to get an awful lot out of this all you have to do is give little rights up but you're going to really enjoy the creation of whatever it happens to be yeah that's how it works yeah I mean it's a total war on the mind and a total war on the body I mean there's so much disinformation out there on the mind and particularly on the body too I mean I'm someone who's really you know done my best in the health food scene but there's so many traps out there like what you talk about vegetarianism and the whole thing like personally i'm a vegan but like you know aside from all that there's there's so many traps you can get get involved in uh, along that way but i'm just trying to do everything i can to have most energy and to really you know do do the best i can to help uh, resist this so-called new world order but i mean you know a lot of times it really does look so uh grim but the thing the thing that i keep in mind is that this truly is the garden of eden and i feel like you know it, it is in t- eternity and we are in this, this great opportunity and but you don't want to be too positive because that's the whole you know whole other trap where you're yeah. not being realistic at all that's right. i mean it's all such a fine balance yeah Remember, all, all heavens can be a hell, too. It depends who's ruling uh, the world, and uh, that's part of it as well. So, uh, I mean, if the kingdom of heaven is truly within you, then so, so is the ability to create a world of hell as well. And there are those who are certainly doing it today. There's no doubt about it. With long-term plan to poison us, kill us off, and get their wonderful utopia after 2050 or so. But thanks for calling. From Hamish Marcel from Ontario, Canada... It's good night to me, your God or your God's go with you.